Welcome to the Fully Engaged Church Podcast, your source to help your church grow in ministry effectiveness. We'll connect you with some of the leading thinkers in church world today to help you get fully engaged with your community, with God, and with everyone you encounter. If you're ready to see your church experience what it's like to be fully engaged, you've found the right place. You've found today's episode of the Fully Engaged Church Podcast, brought to you by Mag Bookkeeping. Greetings, everybody, and welcome to uh, this episode of the Fully Engaged Church. I'm Randy Anji, president of Mag Bookkeeping, and I'm so delighted to introduce this week's guest, Mark Thomas, who's relationship manager with the Bank of the West. And I, this is going to be an incredibly helpful conversation for you today. And here's why, because Mark is going to talk about how you can ensure that your church never goes through a, a foreclosure, a financial foreclosure. We'll unpack that a little bit here in a bit and uh, talk about some steps to really protect yourself and ensure that that doesn't happen to you. But first of all, Mark, welcome. Welcome to the Fully Engaged Church Podcast. Great to have you on. Well, Randy, thank you. It's a delight to be here, and uh, thank you for inviting me to visit with you today and, and all the churches that are going to uh, kind of buzz in and, and listen to what we have to say. So really appreciate what MAG is doing out there in the church community today. Mark, tell us a little bit about yourself um, and, and your work at Bank of the West. Well, thank you. Thanks for asking about that. Um, I am, if we go back far enough, uh, I'm actually a PK. I grew up in a pastor's home and it was a very healthy and good pastor's home. Uh, did not go directly into the church work world went into the secular workforce for some time and then uh, got a degree and then found myself on the church's side of the desk for about 10 years as a director of operations, uh, having to manage. Uh, actually, I worked with three different congregations. Uh, the first one was a smaller uh, congregation of about 150. Then was privileged to go to another congregation of about five to 600 and then uh, Prior to coming to Bank of the West, I worked with a large organization or church uh, of about 2,500. So I, I was very blessed with a broad, uh, breadth of experience in the church community in the director of operations role. And uh, then Bank of the West uh, reached out to me, uh, let's see, 14 years ago, uh, actually this week, celebrating 14 years Excellent. with Bank of the West. And well, congratulations. Yes. Well, thank you, Randy. Yeah. That's that's awesome. I understand you just moved to Kansas City as well. I did. We uh, relocated to the Kansas City area, a little more centrally located uh, for the part of the world that I serve. And uh, so we are we are making our home in Kansas City. So that's great. Well, awesome. And again, thank you for for joining us. So, Mark, uh, one of the things we decided to talk about today, and I think this is really relevant and timely, is this whole idea of the fact that churches can really safeguard themselves from ever having a foreclosure. And uh, anybody who's not seen a church go through a foreclosure or hear, heard about a foreclosure um, is, is actually blessed, and, and that's a good thing, but it, it can be a really ugly uh, event in the life of a congregation, can't it? Absolutely can. Um, and oftentimes, um, 
can prove to be not only uncomfortable to go to go through, but can prove to be the demise of that church. So, uh, and and to say nothing of uh, what that communicates to the broader community that is looking at the church itself. Sure. Yeah, and it, one of our um, our our principles here at the fully engaged churches, we care about churches being engaged deeply with God deeply with one another and fully engaged with their communities. And certainly um, a foreclosure can hinder all three of those engagements, uh, engagement levels, because we're focused on the wrong things at that point. And church leaders are having to do things then that they're not prepared or equipped to do that is certainly take, take our focus off of ministry for sure. So, so I know, um, I know this will be a relevant topic for the listeners today. So tell us a little bit about what's changed in the foreclosure landscape since the great economic uh, downturn mm. in 2008-2009. Sure. Um, now that I live in the Kansas City area, for those of you that have ever uh, traveled across Kansas heading towards Denver and the Rocky Mountains, uh, I suspect that would probably the, be the best word picture for you of the landscape as it pertains to church foreclosures. Um, prior to 2008, 2009, it is somewhat like driving across Kansas. It's very flat. There's no hills. Uh, you see no peaks in a graph. Uh, it virtually was a pristine landscape, very level, flat, no foreclosures. Uh, but as we neared 2008-2009, it's somewhat similar to what you see uh, about maybe 80 or 90 miles east of Denver in the Rocky Mountains on a clear day. All of a sudden, you see the skyline of Denver and the high rises uh, jetting up out of the ground, if you will, and then the majestic Rocky Mountains behind them. And uh, there was virtually no foreclosures prior to 2008, 2009. And then when we found ourselves in what has been termed the Great Recession, all of a sudden we hit a precipitous rise in foreclosures. Um, I believe there was a study done by a commercial real estate company, not one that specializes in churches, but they took a look at um, the religious marketplace as a whole. Now, that did not just mean churches. It, it could have been a Christian university or Christian organization, but uh, they did pull out of that that at one time in 2010 and 2011, there were high, as high as 200 church foreclosures. Wow. So to go from virtually a zero church foreclosure to 200 church foreclosures within a year to year and a half time period. Um, it was virtually unheard of in the church marketplace, very low risk, very um, cautious, prudent people. And uh, then something drastically happened in nine, 10 and 11. Wow. So unlike, uh, um, unlike arriving at the Rocky mountains and all of that grandeur, we do, these are not, uh, these are not stats that we want to be driving toward. And so, <laughs> <laughs> Certainly, yeah, that is a good word picture. So, um, so a lot has happened. A lot has changed in this uh, 
environment. And uh, there are some things that we've learned that we can coach leaders to, uh, uh, to leverage and to help, help them avoid this sort of uh, pain and suffering, if you will. So let's talk about those. Um, what would be the, you know, you, I think you'd listed four primary things. Let's talk through those four. The first being, uh, what would the first be? As people of faith, <laughs> we often encounter um, a faith that becomes overly optimistic. <laughs> uh, and while I love walking with people of vision and passion and uh, wanting to accomplish great things, um, which is all something that should happen in the religious community, um, sometimes there's an overly optimistic side to that that uh, influences perspectives and planning and just begins to skew the picture pretty aggressively. So there are some church leaders that think their church is going to grow at 20% plus in new uh, new attendees every year. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah, there, that could happen, Randy. Yes, it could. Um, it was... It was not an uncommon practice back in the uh, the two early two thousands for me to sit with a church and um, have them lay out their vision and their plan as they were considering perhaps a construction or expansion project because of growth, and they would they would put before me uh, some of their historical trends that they would graph out and they would demonstrate you know that they've seen oh, maybe 18 to 20% growth for the last three years. And then they would extrapolate that over the next five years saying, you know, that that trend is going to be a continuing trend. And uh, so then, and then what would sometimes happen is they would say, well, and imagine what's going to happen when we get this new building. We've got all this seating capacity. And then lo and behold, they point to a window in time about three years out. You see 25% growth that year or something of that nature. And so then they would begin to extrapolate these, uh, what I would probably say were somewhat overly optimistic uh, projections into their numbers and what their revenue would be because of that. Right. Yes. Yeah. I've, I've seen and heard the same thing and yeah, uh, we've got to be careful. It's, uh, you know, future planning and uh, right sizing for people God sending our way is important, but not being overly optimistic at those people coming in, uh, being able to uh, pay for that space certainly is part of the equation. So some of the more, uh, and I probably would add that, I always encourage church leaders, as you have said, to uh, be visionary and believe for great things in the future and for multiplication. Uh, and some of the some of the churches that I have seen uh, move through expansion and some of the largest capital undertakings that uh, they have to this point in their history undertaken are are teams that really looked at three scenarios they looked at what would probably be an overly optimistic projection. Mm -hmm. Then they looked at one that might be a very modest 
projection of growth of maybe 5% or something of that nature in, in relationship to what they've seen historically. Mm-hmm. And then they took a third scenario, which was about in the middle of the two of those. Mm-hmm. And they ran projections off of those three scenarios mm-hmm. and then built models around that so that they could have a sense of what that meant. And in so doing, they prepared themselves for um, probably what's closer to reality. Right. And, uh, mm-hmm. and, and in the course of that, uh, kept themselves probably from getting out there a little bit too far. Right. Excellent. Well said. So, so uh, caution against being overly optimistic and being sure you check and model that in some, with some different scenarios and being somewhat conservative in, um, uh, you know, the payback portion of that model for sure. So that's a great one to start with. What would be the second, second, uh, yeah, the second thing that would cause foreclosures to happen? It kind of dovetails somewhat with the first because most churches look at their people numbers first and that growth trend is obviously significant and then they add to that what the potential revenue is going to be because they have these people coming Um, and when they begin to apply similar projections to revenue and apply inflated multiples to their revenue stream, they begin to uh, have what I call a compounding effect of crisis. Mm -hmm. If the first trend line is people numbers Mm -hmm. and you apply an inflated growth projection to that, and then you take a revenue number that you inflate off of an inflated people number, you'll see how you have a multiplying effect that is inflationary and heading you towards a crisis moment. And then when you apply inflated multiples of revenue for debt projections, you can see this is a compounding uh, effect that's gonna head to crisis. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. If your um, assumptions are wrong on two fronts, they can accelerate the, or exacerbate, I guess is a better word, they exacerbate the problem. So, well said. Uh, One of the stats that we pay attention to and share with clients here at Mag Bookkeeping is, you know, we we talk about um, average giving per giving unit you know, and we mm-hmm. do that with our clients when we do um, high-level CFO coaching and consulting. Uh, but the other thing that we try to um, share with them is their debt per giving unit. Uh, and sometimes you look at uh, debt per giving unit versus dollars given per giving unit, and you realize that uh, inadvertently churches have gotten themselves in a really tight spot because their debt per giving unit is sometimes three and four times uh, what what their dollars given per year per giving unit is, and without some rapid growth numerically, that we we start seeing that as you know we're headed for trouble unless you really have a a really uh, focused and aggressive payback plan. So do you mm-hmm. see that as well? 
We do. Um, you're, that level of detail that MAG provides uh, in CFO coaching for churches is outstanding um, because it's, it's an equation that sometimes churches don't pay quite as much attention to. And so it's a, it's a great barometer of health from a debt level for an organization. The, the corollary um, to that is, as you have rightly pointed out, they have to have some pretty aggressive growth to keep up with their uh, debt obligation. The, the aspect that we often will see churches find themselves not implementing in the healthiest start right, but then finish or slow down on. And, and what that is, is a very focused generosity initiative. Hmm. Most times right. when a church moves into an expansion uh, project, they're pretty focused and, and they understand we're going to have to probably do a generosity initiative or a capital campaign. Mm -hmm. They then occupy that facility and now they're in the debt service side of that and they begin to say, well, okay, we don't have to do a generosity initiative again, or uh, if you will, quote unquote, let's give the people a rest, <laughs> which obviously there has to be some prudence around that as well. You don't want donor fatigue, as they say. Right. But um, they, the place where churches have sometimes found themselves with this very high debt level per giving unit Mm -hmm. is because they have not maintained a focused generosity initiative and that revenue stream that they they counted on early has all of a sudden gone away yes and now they find themselves in a very high debt level per giving unit so mm -hmm. that's the other thing that, that consistency mm -hmm. with a very focused professionally orchestrated generosity initiative yes. is one of the best things that churches can mm -hmm. do post-occupancy mm. to be sure that they don't find themselves in an upside-down situation. Wow, that uh, wise counsel. Uh, we recommend that churches contemplating this kind of thing, uh, building, major expansion, that this sort of initiative, we really are proponents of external coaching. Are, are, how do you guys feel about that when it comes to leading those kinds of campaigns and, and, mm. and uh, providing that information? That's a great question, Randy. And um, it's one that uh, from a banking perspective and, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I don't know if I can actually do this, but I'll take my church hat off for a minute <laughs> and put my credit analyst hat on. That is a risk analyzer. Um, you would understand that everything boils down to the analytics of numbers from a risk profile perspective of a church. And so I'm going to answer your question from a historical risk analysis perspective and tell you that our statistics show us <clears throat> that the outcomes between what we term as an internally orchestrated generosity initiative or capital campaign, whereby no external coaching is engaged, the leadership does not seek external coaching, and it's off, we often hear them say, well, we've been through campaigns before, we can do this ourselves. Mm 
<laughs> there are some churches that can't. Yes. I would, uh, there, excuse me, there are some churches that can do that. I would say the percentage of churches in America that can do that successfully is pretty small. And I'm saying that strictly from an analytics of historical data perspective. Right. Um, so the, the internally orchestrated way of doing a campaign is one that we have tracked. And then the professionally orchestrated campaign, where, as you alluded to, they seek coaching, external coaching to come in and give them specific direction and how to do this in the most successful manner. When we compare the two of those, there's a very, very demonstrable outcome from the two. Wow. So from a purely analytical perspective of looking at the numbers, um, I often tell churches, I know you have to be very fiscally responsible. And yes, consulting does cost money. But from my perspective, and as a uh you know, an elder on a church board that evaluates the best input of our resources for the greatest impact of the kingdom and for this local organization, um, I will pay the fee to bring in a professional quality consultant and coach to help us with generosity initiatives, because I know the outcome, both numerically from a returns perspective, if you will, as well as what can happen in leadership development and in the broader generosity culture of the organization, you, you can't replace that. And there's very few churches that can do that internally to the level that and the outcomes that are desired. So there's, there, I, I wear kind of two hats with that. Analytically, as a credit analyst and a risk analyzer, um, the numbers are pretty clear. Um, professionally orchestrated, outside coach campaigns almost exclusively outperform numerically, hmm. internally orchestrated ones. And then when you look at the broader reach of the generosity culture of your church, your community, and the impacts of leadership development that can come through that with a quality coach, um, hands down, you know, the preference would be to see you, an organization use a coach. Excellent. Yeah. And, and that is, that's certainly been our position as well and our recommendation. Um, and there are some, there are some excellent folks out there. There are, um, are some that we highly recommend. Um, and, we recommend that leaders set up a good process of interviewing somebody so you find a great fit for you, but um, certainly see that same value. So the third um, cause of foreclosures on your list starts to focus a little less on the church's responsibility and a little more on the lender. Talk to us about that one. Yeah. Um, we, back in the uh, mid to late 90s and on into the early 2000s, um, we, uh, in the broader banking community, and I'm going to make a very clear distinction here, uh, I am not referring to Bank of the West, but in the broader lending community across the country, we saw some very uh, imprudent lending practices. And um, when I say imprudent, you know, you're saying, Mark, well, what do you mean by that? That's a pretty uh, broad term. 
I think the highest thing uh, that, that was we saw as a trend that began to move pretty aggressively across our country in the banking environment was a application of multiples to revenue that inflated what a church should be borrowing. Well, what does that mean? Commonly was understood in the banking community and in the church community that it wasn't a prudent thing for a church to ever assume they could service debt that was three times their revenue stream. Mm -hmm. In the mid-90s and on into the early 2000s, we saw lenders applying four-time multiples to revenue streams and even as high as four and a quarter to four and a half times multiples to revenue streams. Wow. And so there was a definite lack of prudence um, mm -hmm. and a uh, unhealthy familiarity with risk that lenders took on in America. Now, again, I'm going to pause and I'm going to delineate. Bank of the West did not do that. We have maintained the same prudent underwriting philosophy over the past 24 years that we've had this religious institution banking division as a part of Bank of the West. And one of the reasons we've done that, Randy, is after $3 billion of church lending, for the first time in our history last year, we had our first foreclosure wow. across $3 billion in church lending. Wow. And so, um, our credit team has taken an approach that, you know, it's an overused adage probably, but if it ain't broke, yeah. we're not going to try to fix it. Right. And just because popular financial talking heads that uh, don't have to live with the church's reality post the closing of the loan have said they should do something else. Bank of the West has said, no, this is probably the most safe and most prudent way for a church to view debt. Right. And so um, we, we saw a lot of lenders in that 15-year period uh, doing transactions for churches that we thought, mm, we just, we're not comfortable going there. Yeah. But that was, that was a dynamic. And I suspect, Randy, you probably saw some of that and you yes. encountered some of that. Yes. in your experience as well. Ab absolutely did. And, um, you know, I, some of that is still being managed and unwound in, in a lot of congregations. And, uh, you know, the other dynamic with church lending that, that I think church leader, it's important for church leaders to know is that if you are truly a growing church, you're going to want a, an accelerated uh, strategy or a strategy to accelerate debt payment because your next wave of growth is going to take you to a, yet another project. Um, it's not like buying a home. You're not going to live there 30 years and pay it off. And so you get a, a 20 or 25 year AM on your loan. You, you don't have the luxury of paying that off over 20 or 25 years. If you're a growing church, if you're mm -hmm. a growing church, you're going to need more space sooner. And there's a snowball that can start to happen here if we're not careful. So, right. Yep. Yeah. Very well said. The, uh, 
if you, if a church takes a maintenance mode towards debt management and they're in a growth mode regarding attendance, they are not going to be in a healthy position if the growth mode continues because maintenance mode with debt management and a growing organization is not a, a survive, you know, that's not a thriving scenario. It will definitely out, your debt will outpace what you can do. So that is three out of the four uh, to help keep people out of foreclosure, churches out of foreclosure and focused on ministry. And the fourth one I think is uh, can come from a lot of different angles at us as uh, church leaders. So speak to that one. Sure. It's, uh, I would call it uh, simply a loss of integrity in leadership. Mm. Um, and I suspect in the religious community, the first place that most people's minds would go when you talk about a loss of integrity would would be to a, uh, you know, a moral indiscretion or a, uh, an inappropriate relationship with amongst leadership. And certainly, uh, without question, a very devastating dynamic. And um, uh, that loss of integrity has a rippling effect into every aspect of the church, including its revenue stream. However, I wouldn't, I wouldn't paint a loss of integrity that narrowly. While that is probably the one that comes to the mind most readily, I would not, it is that and that alone. There's certainly a loss of integrity that can take place in leadership. When leadership, um, you know, uh, if you will, builds a kingdom unto themselves and has very little outside counsel in the process. And, mm -hmm. Um, we certainly have seen that where uh, centralized leadership decisions are made between two or three people and um, there's not a lot of uh, external involvement or congregational involvement in those decisions. And uh, so there's, there's an, that's an integrity issue really um, there, or uh, even the abundant, you know, the abundance of counsel is something that uh, I think is to be um, highly regarded. Right. And when there is a separation from that and an unwillingness, uh, oftentimes it, it was uh, quite heartbreaking, quite honestly, mm -hmm. to sit with leadership teams and, and talk with them and experience a uh, I guess I'll say it, just an, an unwillingness to listen to outside counsel uh, from experienced people to say, not, not trying to squelch your vision, not trying to kill your vision, not, not even disbelieving your vision, but um, there's an element of prudence that the abundance of counsel can bring to it. And, and when there, there is an unwillingness to accept that, I, I, I think that's a lack of integrity in leadership. Right. Yeah, we, we, we talk um, with folks a lot about trust. And, you know, part of great financial oversight and management builds trust. Um, leadership is constantly either putting trust deposits in the bank with people or withdrawing, whether you realize it or not. And so good, count, good coaching and, and, and counsel 
can help you understand ways that you can add to the bank deposit, not take away from it, you know, metaphorically speaking, obviously. But, um, you know, it, it is a huge issue. And um, we've seen projects go south or buildings not be paid for or fulfillments that were pledged not, not uh, fulfilled because of a, where, where this um, loss of trust has occurred somewhere along the way. And it can be really sudden. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm. I, I always found, found it, uh, and I always find it very encouraging when I sit with a leadership team and as we're talking about their vision, about their plans, uh, again, probably the largest capital endeavor that they've ever undertaken, when one of the senior leaders, be that uh, the, the lead pastor or executive pastor uh, or one of the lay leaders that's uh, a significant voice in the decision looks at me and says, okay, Mark, here's what we think we should do. Tell me what I don't want to hear <laughs> or tell me what I don't see. Yeah. Um, mm. And not, and please not saying that I have the voice of all wisdom or all, all knowledge, but mm. to, to sense, from a leadership team, th that aspect of each of us, I think humanly, that we can have blind spots and we can get so enamored with our own vision sure. that uh, sometimes we overlook some things. And uh, it's always such an enjoyable interchange with leadership teams that they want, they want to be sure that they're not missing something or they're not over-assuming or... Mm. Uh, they're really taking, you know, into account, whether they accept it or not, they're taking right. into account other perspectives. You know, it, it's incredible to see the differences sometimes in the way either a leader or a small group of leaders will approach outside counsel and turn those stones over and be sure that you're asking critical questions and that you're open to hearing the answers. And, uh, the book of Proverbs talks about, uh, you know, wise, um, mm. wise leaders uh, have, a, have a lot of counselors and seek a lot of counsel. And I think that's, that's a really wise thing. I was talking with a church recently uh, that, that happened to be, it's not a congregational ruled church. They don't vote on anything, but about the importance of bringing people along at an appropriate level so they knew what was happening and so that they were had some places to input and uh, and uh, not outpace their people, if you will. And the way I phrased it was every church votes. Uh, they people vote with their feet and their pocketbook, and mm. you can you can you can ignore that at your own peril. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Good. I think the other when when talking about um, the integrity aspects of it that that I think really uh, go back to a, a statement you made a little bit early, Randy, uh, that MAG is, is very much focused on encouraging uh, the church to seek out good coaching. Um, th these aspects that we've talked about, um, these four primary aspects that if you look back at this uh, 
landscape of explosive church foreclosures that we experience. And how do you avoid that? How, what's the process that you implement that best protects you from ever being close to that is um, really to engage quality, well-vetted uh, coaching par partners in various aspects of it. We always say, if you engage key players early and often in the process, and those key players are going to be, you know, a quality generosity strategist, um, a quality, uh, if you're doing construction, obviously a quality um, architect and a quality project manager and a quality general contractor and, yeah. and reaching out for those quality people that have long track records of healthy projects and healthy church coaching and you begin to interact with those folks they're going to be the ones that are going to be if you will pointing to the other people and saying have you vetted this with your lender or have you vetted this with your architect or what does your generosity consultant yes. say about that yes. and i think the healthiest processes that we have seen churches walk through as they encounter some of their largest capital endeavors, or if you will, if they are considering their highest risk profile that they've had yet in their, their history, um, the healthiest processes are those that engage quality coaches that have demonstrated track records yep. that match up well with the DNA of their organization that they will listen to and then cross communicate or encourage the leadership of the church to cross communicate with these other specialists, lenders, yes. generosity consultants, architects, project managers, all of these AVL specialists mm -hmm. and have them, you know, collaboratively working with them to develop mm -hmm. the best process. Yes. Um, as they walk through that, you know, it's generally a 18, 24 month process. When they get to the end of the road on that, mm -hmm. they have a much better outcome. Yeah. And uh, mm -hmm. I, I, I think it's a very safe statement to say by so doing, they've really insulated themselves against ever finding themselves in a foreclosure situation. Yeah. It, yeah, and I, I think, Randy, it's pretty safe to say that foreclosure is almost always a totally avoidable event. Yes. Well, and and again, uh, kind of coming full circle, and I I love the way you frame this, Mark. I appreciate your words today. I think this is really wise counsel for every church leader out there listening, and uh, so I hope you feel like um, we've shared some things today that you can benefit from. Again, you know, not being overly optimistic, being sure that your reality checking projections that were um, applying the right multiples for, from a debt projection standpoint and a payback uh, profile that makes sense for church world, not for any other environment, but for the church. Third being, uh, you know, a, a real prudence in the, uh, in the lending environment, making sure the lender understands church and uh, knows how to speak and evaluate church and not just uh, 
out there to, to write a loan, not worried about whether it gets paid back or not. Uh, and then, of course, the, the whole leadership integrity issue, being sure that you stay protected. It's shocking, folks, to know how many leaders leave a church, how many lead pastors leave a church within 18 months of the completion of a construction project. And oftentimes that's because something's happened in the, in the middle of this that's created an integrity issue. And it's sometimes very subtle, as Mark said. And so really, really wise counsel, Mark. And thank you again for being with us today. Absolute privilege. Uh, thank you for the invitation. And thank you for all that MAG does to, to serve uh, the local congregation as well. We are uh, pleased to do that. And folks, thank you for joining us today on the Fully Engaged Church. Um, until next time, goodbye. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of the Fully Engaged Church Podcast, brought to you by MAG Bookkeeping. For more information on helping your church become more fully engaged, visit us at magbookkeeping.com or follow us on Twitter at magbookkeeping. Join us next time for another episode of the Fully Engaged Church.